Amen. Go ahead and be seated as you're seated. Go ahead and grab your Bibles, and let's find your way to Amos chapter 1. Just by a quick show of hands and a little bit of accountability into our lives, how many of you read through the book of Amos this past week? Raise your hand. All right, not bad. Not bad. Good for you. Others, got some work to do. Come on. Let's let's get in sync together. We're going to be in Amos for a while, so when you're looking for something to read in God's Word, I encourage you to find your place in Amos. We're going to work through chapter 1, verse number 3, through chapter 2, verse number 3, and then next week, we'll wrap up chapter 2. So that kind of gives you an idea for your reading plan for this week. And so as you're turning uh, your, your Bibles to Amos, let me just say that hopefully you're already aware of this fact, but one day... God will execute his perfect justice upon this world. This is a certainty, which means all injustices, all wrongdoings, all wickedness, all acts of brutality will one day be avenged by our Lord. So may you never forget Justice delayed is not justice denied. And so, it is impossible for any one person or for any single nation to straighten out all of the injustices of this world. It's impossible for for any one of us to execute perfect justice among a corrupt and depraved society. But the Lord himself will avenge all the unjust and and evil deeds that have ever been committed. This is a clear and strong declaration from the Word of God. The Bible speaks often about judgment. In fact, there are two major judgment scenes that are uh, depicted in the New Testament. I know you got your Bibles to Amos chapter 1. I'm going to read to you a a section of Scripture that comes from Romans chapter 14. You can turn there if you'd like to. In Romans chapter 14, we see this judgment seat of Christ, which means that every believer, every child of God will give an account of himself to God. This judgment is not uh, something that determines our salvation because our salvation, make no mistake, is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so this judgment does not determine our salvation. Rather, it is a time when believers must give an account of their lives uh, unto our Lord. In Romans chapter 14, uh, verse number 10, it says, But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you, again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seats of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue give praise to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. So, so there's this judgment seat of God that's depicted here in Romans chapter 14. And then... In Revelation chapter 20, we see the, the, the great white throne judgment. So believers are judged before the judgment seat of, of God, and then non-believers will, will be ultimately judged before the great white throne judgment. 
Now also, that, that judgment does not determine salvation either because everyone who stands before the great white throne judgment has already denied or rejected Jesus Christ. And so, because of that, they're already doomed to, to live in eternity in the lake of fire. And in Revelation chapter 20, beginning in verse number 11, says, There I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were, were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Ultimately, God is going to execute His perfect justice among us. Now, In Scripture, in the book of Amos, we see a moment in history where God brought down His judgment upon particular nations for particular sinful activities that were present among them and this morning we're going to unpack this judgment that God brought to these nations and then hopefully find some encouragement or some conviction to make adjustments in our own lives based upon what we see the Lord doing through this book of Amos and so we're going to begin in in, in verse number three and so the roar of the lion begins to speak out judgment. And the judgment that he speaks out first is to the people of Damascus. And the people of Damascus are going to be judged because they are a cruel people. It says in verse number 3, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Damascus, and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. Because they threshed Gilead with implements of sharp iron. So I will send fire upon the house of Hazel, and it will consume the citadels of Ben-Hadad. And I will break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Avon and him who holds the scepter from Beth Eden, so that the people of Aram will go exile to Kerr, says the Lord. And so here we know that these, uh, the Syrians, if you will, are, are, are a cruel people. Amos denounced the, the people of Damascus for their inhumane treatment of the Israelites. And also gives an example of their brutality. The Syrian soldiers would torture their enemies with these heavy threshing sledges. These threshing sledges would have been used typically in fields to separate the grain from the shaft. And so a, a, a sledge would have been something depicted a little bit like this, kind of give you a visual understanding. But typically, uh, the boards would be about seven feet long and about three feet wide. Underneath, they would often have like jagged rocks and stuff. Here we see that they had uh, sharp iron was used. 
And so what's happening is that these Syrian soldiers would ride along and they would drag these sledges behind them over the bodies of their captives to torture them or to ultimately kill them in a very pain and slowful, painful and slow way. My family's not here to roll their eyes at me for that word. So, But in a very painful and very slow process, they would torture them. Such acts of violence reveal the depths of the depravity of their hearts. They were extremely brutal and shamelessly cruel to their enemies. And if we are so callous as to reap satisfaction of the shedding of the blood of another person, or if we too are so callous uh, that we seek to desire excruciating pain in the lives of other people, then we should be very careful about having such an attitude lest we, we face the judgment of God as well in our lives. And so uh, the judgment of Damascus was to a cruel people, and then it goes to the judgment of Gaza. The judgment of Gaza is that they weren't cruel people, they were a callous group of people. In verse number 6 it says, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. Because they deported an entire population to deliver it up to Edom. So I will send fire upon the wall of Gaza, and it will consume her citadels. And I will also cut off the inhabitants from Ashdod, and him who holds the scepter from Ashkelon. And I will even unleash my power upon Ekron, and the remnants of the Philistines will perish, says the Lord. And so here we need to understand that throughout history, uh, the, the Philistines always sought to exterminate, and to, to ultimately eliminate the Israelites. They, they wanted to eliminate the Israelites and, and claim the, their territory as their own territory. They wanted to take the, the land that belonged to Israel for themselves. In fact, the Old Testament depicts seven different major battles that occurred from the Israelites and the Philistines. And if you're interested in, in reading about those battles, I'd write these down. I'll give them to you. You can read about the first one is found in 2 Chronicles chapter 28. Then if you go to uh, the book of 1 Samuel, you can read about battles in uh, chapter 4, then again in chapter 7, chapter 14, so that's chapter 4, chapter 7, chapter 14, then chapter 17, the chapter 17 is the one that we all recognize typically, that's the, the, the battle scene between uh, David and Goliath, that's just one of, of the seven major ones that are given to us. And then you'll read about another one in chapter 31. And then you can read uh, about the seventh battle in 2 Kings chapter 18. And, and so what we know uh, about the people of Gaza is that they were callous and, and hardened individual. They would continually harass the, the Israelites by, by raiding and pillaging their, their villages. And so therefore, uh, they, they, they were guilty uh, of taking captive entire populations and then enslaving them. 
They would take entire populations and then ultimately sell them as slaves to the Edomites. And, and we're going to get to the Edomites in, in just a moment. But, but here, the roar of the lying is speaking its judgment against a very cold and callous group of people. We get to the third nation that the, the roar of the lion speaks to, and that's there in verse number 9. And he's going to speak to the people of Tyre. And the people of Tyre are guilty because they are disloyal. They are disloyal people. It says in verse number 9, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Tyre and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. That is a common phrase that you're going to see repeated over and over and over. And we'll get to that in a moment. But he says, I will not revoke its punishment because they delivered up an entire population to Edom and, and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. So I will send fire upon the wall of Tyre and it will consume her citadel. And so what helps us in understanding this particular uh, spoken judgment against the people is in realizing that the relationship between Israel and Tyre had almost always been peaceful. In fact, if you read through 1 Kings chapter 5, you'll see that in verse number 12, the king of Tyre and King Solomon had entered into a peace treaty. They had a covenant relationship of peace that was established in first kings chapter five so covenant relationship is to be an everlasting relationship and so now here the people of tyre has violated that treaty of peace and they selfishly joined gaza in the mass enslavement of the israelites Oh, may you understand that God takes a very dim view against covenant breakers. And that's why he's going to execute his judgment upon this nation. He's going to destroy them and their great wealth. Which, which leads us to the fourth scene, the fourth nation. That's the judgment of Edom or the Edomites. The Edomites are judged because they are an unmerciful people look at verse number 11 it says thus says the lord for three transgressions of eden and for four i will not revoke its punishment because he pursued his brother with the sword while he stifled his compassion his anger also tore continually and he maintained his fury forever so i'll send fire Upon Timah, and I will consume the citadels of Basra. The Edomites have nursed a, a long standing grudge against the Jewish people. This was perpetuating the rivalry between Jacob and Esau. The Edomites are the direct descendants from Esau. And so Esau despised his. A spiritual heritage and he willingly sold his birthright to his brother but then on top of that Jacob then cheated Esau from receiving his blessing from his father as a result of that Esau then vowed to kill and destroy Jacob and so this hostility exists between the brothers 
Now, there later, they were briefly reconciled. You can read about that in Genesis chapter 33. They're briefly reconciled, but the hostility continued in their lives. And so as far as the biblical record is concerned, the last meeting that we see between Jacob and Esau occurs in Genesis chapter 35. The last encounter between these brothers and all of their hostility occurs in Genesis chapter 35 where they meet and they gather for the burial of their father. They, they buried their, their father, but they were unable to bury the bitterness that they had with each other oh let me caution you if you're harboring bitterness if 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 that's been festering in your life for however long you gotta let it go you gotta you gotta deal with it you gotta release it James says in James chapter 4, verse number 17, if we know to do good and we fail to do it, then it's sin. And so it's time to, to let go of that bitterness. It's time to release. It's time to forgive. And when do we forgive and who do we forgive? Well, we always forgive and we forgive anyone that offends us. That's the command that God gives us in His Word. Make no mistake. Our community is filled with people that have desperate needs. And beyond that, if we're just going to be honest with each other, this church is filled with people that have desperate needs. It's harder to see it sometimes in the church because we hide behind this facade that we've got it all together and everything's good in our lives. But if we were to be real and we were to be completely 100% honest with each other, we would recognize that this congregation right now is filled with people that are desperately hurting in your life today. Not just our community, but right here. Both places have individuals that bear a lot of pain, a lot of heartache, a lot of frustration. Oh, we are among orphans, widows, the brokenhearted, the addicted, the discouraged, the unemployed, the lonely, and the dying. Question becomes, what are you willing to do about it? We will never effectively model the love the grace of our Savior in our community if we're not first and foremost modeling it here among ourselves. What will you do? In 1 John chapter 3, verse number 17, it says, if someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need but shows no compassion, then how can God's love be in that person? The answer is, can't it's not if our hearts are not compassionate enough to respond to the needs that are around us if we fail to to demonstrate grace and and mercy in our lives then the needs of not just our community but the needs of 
the congregation will, will never be met. We must love one another. The world will know us not by the shirts that we wear, not by the stickers that we put on our cars, not by the music that we listen to, but according to Jesus, the world will know us by our love. Our love. A love that responds to the needs of other people. And so, let's go to nation number five. Let's get to uh, the Ammonites and then the Moabites because uh, they come next. Some of you might know, but if you don't, the Ammonites and the Moabites, they are descendants of Lot. More specifically, they are descendants of his incestuous union with his daughters. You can read about that in Genesis chapter 19. The Ammonites come first. They're going to be judged because they are a very disgraceful people. Look at verse number 13. He says, For three transgressions of the sons of Ammon, and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. Because they ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead in order to enlarge their borders. So I'll kindle a fire on the wall of Rabbah, and I will consume her citadels. Amid war cries on the day of battle and a storm on the day of tempest, their king will go into exile. He and his princes together, says the Lord. Uh, so the Ammonites, they're guilty. They are ruthless people who were enemies of the Jews. And like Edom, they had little compassion. They were even prepared to murder entire populations, including mothers and their unborn children. For the Ammonites, land was much more important to them than people. And they used disgraceful methods in order to gain control over their conquered territory in order to gain control or to exercise their authority or to get what they wanted, this nation was guilty of slaughtering pregnant women, ripping them apart, and destroying their unborn child. Such brutality, I would hope, would shock us. But really, is it any different than what the abortion industry is doing today? I am reminded on a daily basis when I look at the face of my son how thankful I am that a mother who was overwhelmed in life still valued life enough to give birth to her child and then to allow our family to take him in as one of our own. How sad and tragic it is. I don't know if you caught this statistic when Tina shared it earlier, but the majority of women who are facing a crisis in their lives and are connected into a life of a church say that they're not even comfortable going to the church to find answers or to find help. You ever ask yourself, why? Isn't this supposed to be the place where they would run to? 
Shouldn't this be the place where you can find the, the comfort and, and, and the guidance that, that we need in life? The fact of the matter is we're, we're way too often critical and harsh in, in, in how we handle and, and look at other people. We're lacking love. May this church be filled with loving servants of the Most High God that we would do anything that was necessary to help guide a, a mother with overwhelming feelings and emotions and circumstances that we wouldn't just tell her what we think that she should do, that we wouldn't just show her what the Word of God says to do, but that we would attach our lives to her and say, you don't have to go through this by yourself. We are here for you and with you all the way through. So it's so much easier to say, don't do this and don't do that, but are you willing to sacrifice your life, yourself, your family, so that you can help make a difference in the life of someone else? By the way, that's called discipleship. And we're commanded what? To go and make disciples. So discipleship isn't, I kind of, this isn't discipleship. Honestly, what we did for an hour and 15 minutes before the service, honestly, that's not discipleship. That's, that's, we're, we're, we're giving you biblical understanding, and that's a beautiful thing, but, but that's, that's not discipleship. Discipleship is so much more. And what are we called to do? Jesus calls us to make disciples. Make disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Our call from our Lord is to make disciples. And somewhere along the way, we just got it all messed up. And it's not just this church. It's every church I've ever been a part of. We just... Lost sight of that. We begin to look at church and say, well, we, we just want people to come to church. And we, we measure the effectiveness of church by how many people are gathered in the worship service. But honestly, Scripture doesn't say to build a large church service. It says to make disciples. I'm not going to have you raise your hand, but I'll ask you the question, who are you discipling right now? Who are you walking side by side with on a faithful, consistent basis, showing them the Word of God, training and teaching them to observe all things that the Lord commanded? Who are you discipling? Is there a name that comes? Are you discipling anyone? Or maybe you're be perhaps you're being discipled right now. When does discipleship process end? When you're dead. There's not a perfect saint among us. So you don't get to say, yeah, I went through that class. I did eight weeks on that. I'm good. No, it's a lifetime calling to disciple and to, to make disciples and to be discipled. And I'm afraid, if we were to be honest with each other, if I were to ask the question, how many of you have never discipled intentionally anyone? I think the majority of our hands would be raised. And yet... Jesus says, make disciples. 
command that's given to all of his children. So, good news is, we're aware of this missing element in the life of the church. Good news is we have a desire to, to correct that and, 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 to, and to lead into being better disciple makers. Bad news is I don't even know what that looks like. I'm just being honest with you. I'm not sure what that's going to look like. But I am sure I am fully committed to making sure that we do what God's Word calls us to do and that we're willing to look at everything that we're doing and put it under the scrutiny of making sure that's exactly what God calls us to do as a church. So your prayers for us and for me would be greatly appreciated in that respect. I don't even know where I got off on that thought. <laughs> Let's go to the sixth nation. And then we'll stop after this one. Knowing that there's two more judgments that the Lord's going to speak to. But before I get to the two other ones that we'll deal with next week... What's happening here is the, the roar of the lion uh, speaks the judgment upon a total of eight nations. It starts off with the six surrounding nations of Israel and Judah. And then, uh, less Israel and Judah begin to feel all confident and puffed up, thinking, oh yeah, Lord, get them, get them, get them, get them, get them. Then the roar of the lion's going to say, oh no, wait, I'm not done. I'm coming for you as well. And so we'll look at uh, Judah and Israel next week, okay? But, but to wrap up the, uh, for today, go into chapter 2. And here we see the, the judgment of Moab. And they're, they're being judged for being a vengeful people. It says, for three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not revoke its punishment because he burned the bones of the king of Eden to lime. So I'll set, send fire upon Moab and it will consume the citadels of Kerioth. And Moab will die amid turmoil. And with war cries and the sound of a trumpet, I will also cut off the, the judge from her midst and slay her princes with him, says the Lord. And understand that in this present passage, Moab's uh, wicked behavior is actually not directly uh, focused upon Israel. Rather, Moab's behavior, the wickedness, is in effect, towards Edom. It says that they sought revenge against Edom because the Edomites had joined in an alliance against them. And so in order to get their revenge against Edom, then what they did is they attacked Edom and then they exhumed the body uh, of its king. And after exhuming the body of the king, they, they burned the body of the king. They burned it all the way down until there was nothing left but just dust and lime. And so this was a, a, a despicable act that, that, that shows a complete lack of respect. For, for them, it was the most disgraceful and humiliating act of revenge. They were seeking revenge, and so they tried to humiliate the people by digging up the bones of their king and, and burning it. Such vengeance was addressed by the Lord. In fact, God warns us against seeking revenge on our own. So I ask you, for I warn you, I caution you, anger in your life, bitterness, animosity 
hatred. I mean, not only can that consume and ruin your lives, it can have an adverse effect on the lives of your loved ones. Let it go. Trust in the Lord. Like I said at the very beginning, justice delayed is not justice denied. God is sovereign over all things. You can trust the king. You might not understand what he's doing or what he's allowing to happen in your lives, but you can trust that he's got you. And he'll guide you. And he'll strengthen you. And he'll give you the feet that's necessary in order for you to follow the path that he's called you to walk upon. Now let's get to this phrase and then I'll, I'll finish up. Each time uh, the Lord says uh, the same phrase. He starts off by saying for three transgressions and for four. I want you to understand that this is a Jewish idiom that means an indefinite number that has finally come to an end. It's an indefinite number that's finally come to its end. What it's saying is that yes, God is patient. Yes, God is slow to anger. But make no mistake, there is a limit to the patience of our Father. There is a limit to His anger. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse number 9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God is long-suffering with us all, but make no mistake, He marks what we do. And there'll come a time when eventually His patience will run out. And so to try God's patience is to, to tempt the Lord. And to tempt the Lord is to invite His judgment. And notice that as each nation is denounced, the Lord categorically says, I will not revoke the punishment. In other words, because of the intensity and the persistency of these people's sins, nothing would be able to divert God from His determination to exercise His justice upon them. And this is one of the persistent themes in Scripture. That theme is that sin must be punished. Because sin is abomination unto the Lord. So not only is the sin of these nations that need to be punished, all of our sins deserve to be punished. Because our sin is an abomination unto the Lord. So like, do you get the heaviness of that? Because of sin, you are an enemy of God. His wrath abides upon you. He will pour out that wrath upon you unless, unless you receive the, the substitutionary atonement that is offered in and through Jesus Christ. He gave his life without sin, brutally executed. He willingly laid down his life as an exchange for us. So yes, our sin deserves to be punished. Yes, God will pour out all of his wrath upon sin. The only hope that we have to escape the wrath of God 
is to put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It's to commit ourselves to live for him, for his glory, to declare his praises. It's committing our lives to Jesus, making him Lord of our lives, giving him full rule and reign over our lives. It's not about repeating a prayer. It's not about walking in an aisle. It's not about getting wet in the baptistry. It's about submitting our hearts and life to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It's the only hope that we have. As you read about each of these nations, we see that there's no evidence to suggest that any of them were ashamed of their evil ways. Not one of them was prepared to repent of their sins. Not one of them has any desire to turn from it. Do you? Are you prepared to repent of your sin? Do you have a desire to turn from it and to Jesus Christ? Oh, may the book of Amos help us to review our lives and to review our conduct to reflect on what we do and who we are. May it help us to reflect and consider, does our life reflect all that God has called us to do and to be? If not, are we willing to deal with it? When? I don't know. I think now's a good time. What's the one thing that you need to do today to leave here in a right relationship with the Father? Is it a sin that needs to be confessed? Forgiveness that needs to be extended? Salvation that needs to be obtained in your life? What's the one thing? We're going to move into a time of prayer. And as we pray for, for a few moments, staff and I will be down here at the front. We'd love to pray with you. You can sit where you're at, you can stand, you can kneel, whatever posture of prayer that you feel is appropriate. We can just take a little bit of time. We offer you the opportunity right here, right now. What's the one thing? Can we pray for you? Father, help us in this moment. Help us to do the right thing. To make the right choice. Not to worry about what's happening around us. But may your spirit convict us of what we need to do. May you be praised and glorified by what you see from us. In Christ's name I pray.